171 for July 13th, 2021. I'm C. Fodor. And I'm convention goer Chip Hessenflug. And I'm just at home still, Pam Bedore. Yeah, Chip and I went to PopCon in Indianapolis this weekend. And uh, boy, boy, oh boy, did we have a fun time, Chip. Well, that means that people want to get out and they want to do things. And we got to meet some authors and people like reading and that's why we have a book club, Steve. And that's why we're reading a post-pandemic book, because the pandemic is over. I declared that in the middle of the convention. Like, I shouted, the pandemic is over. And people looked at me like, no, no, it's really not. But it was really, really great to be at a convention, to see people, to be a part of society. We really, really want it to be over. And Station Eleven, our our book for the book club, the post-pandemic world where they really, really wanted the pandemic to be over. But boy, oh boy, the the uh, lifestyle change in this book was a massive, big change in culture. In this section this week, honestly, Pam, I forgot that our author went into the what was happening during the pandemic in this section. Yeah, and she does it in such an amazing way in my mind because she really, she gives you a lot of details about how the people who survived, what exactly they did to survive. But it's late enough in the novel that you're seeing it through memory, through nostalgia. So as a reader, like, you know that Jeevan survives. Mm -hmm. And so- you're just like, how did he do it? And Kirsten, of course, has very little memory of how she did it, which also sounds very right for someone who was a child during this time of what must have been enormous trauma. Mm-hmm. And, and what really makes reading this so interesting is that we just experienced many of these same things mm-hmm. when our pandemic started. All pandemics would be horrific, but this one was incredibly uh, prolific, I guess, as far as the death count is concerned. It's almost Uh, species ending. And we're sitting there going through, oh, I remember going to Target and I remember looking through the dry goods and and the toilet paper and the, the canned goods. And you're like, you need to have all this set up. There was that moment when our pandemic began, there was that run on the grocery stores. And we see in the memories of this story where Jeevan first thing he did was go to the grocery store and he got everything that he could before the real panic set in. And that's how he survived. He took all this stuff to his brother's house. They taped off all the windows and the vents. They blockaded the door and they survived that way. Absolutely. I mean, and and you can still see what we're experiencing today is still kind of rifling through every once in a while, there's a shortage of something or a spike in price and something, you know, where did that come from? Well, people weren't working at full capacity in real life. Right. And so the author does a really good job at, I don't know, kind of showing how that would, uh, or at least predicting how that would really play out. And I think she really does like show, not tell. Mm -hmm. So I think the great example of that is with Jeevan and his brother and how Frank, who is in a wheelchair, I mean, he's not, he's not leaving the apartment and he realizes that. And her writing style where she drops that fact on us and just leaves it there. The rest of the idea of, oh, by the way, Frank is in a wheelchair, is left up to us. 
And then she's got this foreshadowing and callback that she then explains why Frank is in a wheelchair chapters later. And we go, oh, all of those pieces are coming together. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't that the puzzle that a good novel wants to put together? This is a mystery story, isn't it, Pam? Well, I am writing about this novel in my Canadian crime fiction book. This is, I mean, even though it's an apocalyptic novel, post-apocalyptic, it is not in the genre of detective or crime fiction. It nonetheless uses the structures of detective fiction in the way it engages readers. And, and it is super engaging because of that. The way that she puts together those pieces gives us those clues to how this actually happened without, like you said, without spelling it out for us, showing, not telling. Is This is a masterclass. And, you know, she uses the body on page one convention that is used at the beginning of like all mystery, all murder mysteries. <laughs> However, there's no mystery around how Arthur Leander died. There's just a mystery around what it means. Wow. Right? Like it's hard. so it's a very, I mean, I love this. I love this novel on so many levels. And as I think I already told you guys, every time I think, oh, I'll just skim it. I read it last year. I end up rereading the whole thing because it's just so engaging. And it's not technically a time travel adventure, but the way that she puts together the pieces out of order feels like it could be time travel where she's foreshadowing, like, for instance, Miranda, how Miranda dies. She gave us that crumb chapters ago and, and then gives us the story that leads up to that moment. And the whole time I'm going, wow, this was foreshadowed despite the fact that this is not present tense. I think you just said something. Cause remember when we read the time travelers, why, we're listening, we're, we're going through like a, a diary type of uh, situations and they're out of order and things are popping in and it's up to the reader to kind of put it together. This is different, but it's, but it's the same. You're right. It's not time travel, but you certainly are, you're, you're, you're being given the information out of order and, yeah. and it's up to the reader to kind of put it all together. And it activates the reader's cognitive abilities. Right. So as we're reading this, we're not just like turning the page to see what's next. We're like, oh, wait, I remember this. And I think this like we are very actively engaged in the reading process. Not that we want to judge writers or anything like that, or authors in any way. But this is certainly an elevated story mm-hmm. compared to many of the pop culture books that are much more um, not quite film scripts, but certainly um less skilled and once again they are making this into a mini series and i can't imagine how <laughs> that's going to come together i don't know how you present this material as a mini series do you go story by story do you do you not give the the breadcrumbs in episode one that that come to fruition in episode four i i don't know how they're going to do it well, if you remember hulu had 1963 11 63 is the name of that story from stephen king based on the stephen king no- novel and that's kind of what they did because we were running into the same challenge and the miniseries with all respect to it wasn't as effective as the the book was which is frequently the case there Mm -hmm. there are very few examples where the movie is better than the book uh good omens on amazon for those of you who are looking for something that the movie is better than the book (laughs) 
But I would say that I, I mean, I have no idea who has optioned this or anything like that, but I think Station Eleven has the potential to be an amazing miniseries. Oh yes, uh, we, we've got we've got the the ability to release it now, and and we could take it on on any level they needed to to make this a great miniseries. We get into multiple universe theory once again. the The idea that uh, maybe, just maybe, there's a universe out there where the pandemic did not happen. There's a universe out there where uh, you are in a much different place than you are in this universe. And the idea that how that mental gymnastics could either lead you to be very satisfied in your lifestyle or or maybe maybe have regrets. So this influenced uh, Rick and Morty, right? there's this is a real theory quantum theory is a real thing that yes has influenced rick and morty and all sorts of other genres of of fiction you you just you love that show that's so (laughs) funny that you love that show (laughs) i'm a kid at heart steve (laughs) i found it very interesting how we are taking our tour of the actual pandemic and we are looking at it through the lens of relationships in this section, how there's brothers and sisters, there's marriages and divorces, there's parents, absent parents that we, we didn't think about until this section. She is really giving us that emotional cue of how these characters went through this story and, and we are with them in these stories. And I think that's part of the apocalyptic genre, right? Is that during the apocalypse, you're with your family. And then when most people die, you're very unlikely to have anyone that you know still alive, right? So you end up, eventually you just have to make new groups, make new social groups. And obviously the traveling symphony is one example. And then all these little towns that they come into. And then people start to make new kinship groups. So I think there's something very realistic about the way that she manages that. And then you have like, so for Kirsten, who is this little kid, everyone she knew died except one person, but she doesn't even know that the man, the paramedic who worked on Arthur that night and who said to her, you know what, little girl, this man died doing what he loves. He's the lucky one. She doesn't know Jeevan's still alive, and she never will. She wouldn't even recognize him. She asks François Diallo, um, oh, do you know who it was that worked on Arthur that night? And he's like, no, the New York Times story didn't cover it because the pandemic broke out. And that was one moment that I went, aha. I loved it, yes. Because we thought that we were not going to see a New York Times story about the death of Arthur Leander because he was the last natural death before everything went to heck with all of the the pandemic and and here we are we still have that record that still exists that story from the New York Times what do you say the second to last edition of the New York Times yep yep but of course no one was able to do the follow-up story on who was the guy (laughs) because by then we're in the pandemic and by then Jivan is with his eight carts of groceries in his brother's apartment sealing up the ducts so it's amazing we complain right now about you know having too much news or you know even Mm -hmm. fake news and a whole bunch of stuff going on right now but 
if society collapses during this, that connection goes away. So, you know, you get two more days and now, now you don't have anything. And that's one of the themes of this section is there was a time when people would make money by reporting on what celebrities did during the day. And that went away very quickly. And what an interesting statement that is in that theme that what are we doing? Why are we so focused on other people's lives? Why aren't we focused on our day to day? And and that's a wonderful theme here. Well, and you know, that's always the theme of the apocalypse, right? The apocalypse means the revelation. So there's this notion that any kind of like massive change, massive chaotic change, it's a time for you to reflect on what matters to you. And boy, have I seen that just this week regarding our own pandemic. I have talked to so many people who are making changes in career, taking early retirement, moving to new places, just who have taken this 15 or 16 months to think, what do I really want? Yeah. And for a lot of people, it's not actually what they had. <laughs> and so, so it's, it's interesting that that like revelation of what matters. And I love that line, just like you did, Steve, about like there you, for a very brief moment in human history, there was a time where you could make a living on celebrity gossip. And that, that is really absurd when you think about it. Yeah. Like, do I glance at celebrity gossip? Of course. Right? I used to subscribe to Entertainment Weekly. I used to have a magazine, a glossy magazine delivered to my home every week with celebrity gossip. Wh- why? What was this website that Peter Thiel took down? Do you remember what you wanted? Gawker. Gawker. Mm-hmm. That was basically mm-hmm. the sure. internet's sure. version of People Magazine or Entertainment Weekly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly interesting. I, I'm, I'm immediately, um, I just wanted to be very clear. We don't have to have pandemics or apocalypses to get to that moment. There's a reason why people have vacation. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's not on the second, it's not on the third day. It could be on the fourth or fifth day, but being away from your everyday living can give you clarity on what is important. And you'll, all those problems you're working out, they'll just kind of work themselves out. Mm. Um, and all of a sudden, what really matters, will the cream will rise up and you can focus on those types of things. There's a reason why to take that walk down the Appalachian trail. There's a, the reason why to take that trip to the lake or to the beach or whatever that thing is you need to do to get away from your day-to-day life. And any pop culture convention you can get to. <laughs> well, I don't know if three days, I, I well, I said, I enjoyed our day. <laughs> I, I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that. Three days might be overkill. That might get into that routine instead. But there's plenty of studies that kind of show about that uh mm-hmm. that it takes a period of time for the the, the mind to unwind mm-hmm. and i think what's going on in many ways for a lot of people and why people are going out and doing things is they are overworked or they're underworked and just there's this need to 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 get away from mm-hmm. the pandemic yep to and, vacate yes and americans are notoriously bad at not taking as much vacation time as is recommended by those studies that you just cited. Jess. You're absolutely true. And my hope yeah. is, is that Americans will 
start recognizing that their free time is for them to unwind. The work is to allow you to do the things that you want, that you value in life. But we spend a, a lot, way too much time, especially in comparison to other, we'll work extra hours and overtime and stuff like that. And, you know, bless us for, bless our society for allowing that to happen. But the detriment is, is your health and your mental uh, health and, and what makes life worth living. So anyway, start weighing those things out. I think we always come to that, that idea whenever we read an apocalyptic novel. That is part of what these kinds of novels really end up thinking about. And certainly Station Eleven is an excellent example of that. So you guys, I'm very curious, as usual, in this little section, what was your favorite story? So we pursued the stories of Jeevan, of Kirsten, of Miranda, and of Clark. So, well, I was the preparation. Yes, it was going shopping. Yeah. And, and I, I don't mean that. <laughs> in the, but anyway, it just, it just, he had information everyone didn't have. Right. He went to the store and he just said, okay, this is going on. I need to prepare. And people just, you know, think he's nuts. He's, he's going in and, and buying uh, more groceries and stuff like that. And then he st- lets a reveal happen. Was it to the cashier that he made the, the reveal? And um, I don't, you know, the store's closing and he's going for another round or so. Mm-hmm. And then he takes it all and he has to bring it all upstairs. Mm-hmm. That idea, it really resonated with me with, um, I mean, sort of what we went through. Yeah there was certainly a run on the grocery stores and, and we certainly weren't because we were so unsure of the future, we were stocking up for anything. Mm -hmm. And, and the run on the toilet paper really bothers me. Like why, why was there a run on toilet paper? Somebody decided that was the thing that we needed to stock up on. And, and uh, then we, that's why you have corn husks, Steve. (laughs) terrible the the reveal of how frank wound up in the wheelchair was was my moment in this mm-hmm. section where i was like okay he was injured in afghanistan covering the war he was a journalist who felt like it was important for him to go and cover this war and he is injured and he's forever the rest of his life in a wheelchair. The way that the author writes that moment, the way that she reveals to us what's going on, because we could have guessed anything about Frank and the wheelchair before that moment, that idea of duty of, I have to do this regardless of the, the risk to my body that was my favorite part. And didn't you like that Frank and Jeevan, they're both in the media, but at opposite ends. Jeevan's a celebrity gossip reporter and Frank works for Reuters and is in Afghanistan putting his body on the line. And so we do have this notion, but then Jeevan is the one, like I'm, you, you get this feeling, Jeevan's always been in Frank's shadow, right? That was the part that I got was, mm-hmm. this is brothers. He right. sees his brother being successful and theoretically happy in his job. So he tries to do a similar job. Right. And then Jeevan is the one who like sees the writing on the wall. Just like you said, Chip doesn't hesitate, gets this piece of information from his buddy. And is like, okay, I'm going all out. You know, he maxes out his credit card. He buys all of the supplies. 
And, you know, what if it wasn't really a pandemic? That would have been insane. But he doesn't hesitate. And so he has that sort of, like, you can see that they're brothers, even though at first they appear to be so very different from one another. You know, there are preppers. And, yeah. they, and there's there's websites set up to it. There, I mean, there's a whole subculture that basically, I mean, for as long as that we know, I mean, from bomb shelters to whatever, the, right. who, are, who are preppers. Um, it is interesting, though, um, that, well, what would you do? What would you do? What did we do? (laughs) Now, one of my, um, one of my favorite parts of the Frank and Jivan story is that Frank is ghostwriting a memoir for a philanthropist and he keeps working on it (laughs) through the apocalypse. And he has signed a non-disclosure agreement that he will not reveal the philanthropist's name. And he doesn't, not even to his brother, even after you know, the television has stopped even shooting the news. They're just looking outside. They just see hardly anyone on the streets of Toronto, a few gunshots occasionally. And, but that, like, that's who Frank is. He is a journalist through and through, and he signed that contract, and that's that. And he says, oh, you probably would have never heard of him. And that's a mystery that's never solved. (laughs) Who was that philanthropist? (laughs) It doesn't even matter, because that's the kind of work that people do, but don't quite know what it means. Well, isn't that, I mean, isn't that life though? I mean, very yeah. few of us are George Washington. Very few of us are Napoleon. Most of us will die. And while our kids may remember us, um, three or four generations from now, we're just, we're just a person that was a great, great, great grandparent. And that's why we need to get our pictures taken by the paparazzi so that we have a record of all of the great things that we've done in the entertainment is- industry yeah, on this podcast. Well, we, we say stuff like that, but even think of all the movies, all the movie people who are actors and stuff like that. Think of all the politicians. Think of all the, the people who potentially could have had celebrity that at one time we thought were like, this is really important. Well, we remember Shakespeare. Yeah. You know, all the, they were contemporaries. Yeah. But they are Francis not. Francis Bacon. There you go. <laughs> now, one very, very important piece of art that is remembered by G. Van is the REM song. It's the end of the world as we know it. Of course. Of course. I, <laughs> I love that detail because I really like that song, but I don't know any of the lyrics. And <laughs> And does and so you know created starts with the earthquake. The only when it goes into the faster section. The only part that anybody knows is is shouting Leonard Bernstein. Exactly. That's all all anybody knows about that. (laughs) Leonard Bernstein. So, but by the way, REM is known. Before, I mean, at one time for mumbling their lyrics, they mumbled their (laughs) lyrics for like the first three or four albums. But I love that Jeevan has that song in his head. The internet's down. He can't look up the lyrics. It's just making him crazy. And that would be me. That would totally be me. All right, I'm going hot tub time machine. And it was Craig Robinson was, um, all right, so the premise of hot tub time machine was there in an alternative universe. Okay. And um, anyway, he's going to release all the pop songs. Well, he doesn't remember all the lyrics. So he's making up the lyrics for all the pop songs. And he becomes this incredibly successful pop songwriter. (laughs) (laughs) 
it all comes back to you know pop culture and silly stuff <laughs> it all comes back to pop culture this is pop culture in this story another example of how art survives the pandemic he's got this song stuck in his head and i love how the author does not tell us what song it is but we know what song right. it is based on the that rem song that's perfect <laughs> that's perfect writing now when jivan first leaves the city which is hard for him to determine, but he finally decides he has to go. Um, he runs into these three people. And I love this moment where he asks them, is there a lot of crime in the city? Sure, Abdul said. He was thin and nervous with hair down to his shoulders. He twisted a strand around his finger as he spoke. Anarchy, right? No police. Terrifying. But actually not as much crime as you'd expect, Jenny said. There just aren't that many people. And I think, I know, right? Like, so often in our representations of the apocalypse, we do have that crazy looting and crime and cannibalism and all punk sorts rock, of that whole punk rock genre of, of, you know, the big mohawks and the screaming and, mm-hmm. and the warriors come out and play. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly what there. I was going to say. But, <laughs> Mad Max. But yeah. It's so like it's so stark that it's like you know what there's not that much crime because there just aren't that many people so like the fight for resources that we typically portray in post-apocalyptic societies well well, consider that i mean uh if so many people died Mm -hmm. like like in this one if you needed a better couch there's yeah. probably thousands of better mm-hmm. couches out there. If In you, the beginning. Well, I mean, sure. Eventually. Um, but you know, if you wanted a better house, I'm sure there, there's um, there's other houses that are. I'm thinking of. What was the movie I'm thinking of? You're thinking of the TV show Last Man on Earth. No, I'm not. I'm okay. Think, I'm thinking of the one where they go and they meet Bill Murray and he plays a zombie. That is zombie land. Zombie land. There yeah. we go. That's exactly what yeah. they were doing. You know, Bill Murray's out playing golf because there's nobody on the golf course. Right. In the TV show, Last Man on Earth, that you never watched, okay. he's he is the last man on Earth. He does not see anybody for years, and he has his choice of any house in the California area. He just gets a different house. And when the plumbing is no longer working, he's, he's got other uh, ways to take care of his waste. He uses up that property and moves on to another property. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, this is this is a different apocalypse than the one that we just survived. And I really like that Emily St. John Mandel, she looks at these moments in popular culture from all different angles. So like you get the REM reference. Mm-hmm. But then you also get in this same section when Jeevan and Frank are watching TV very near the end of television. Quote, they were stunned with horror, but it hadn't entirely sunk in yet, any of it. And that night, there was a certain awful giddiness. All evidence suggested that the center wasn't holding. Mm. And that comes from the super famous 1920 poem by William Butler Yeats, The Second Coming, which opens turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. And this is an apocalyptic poem, one of the most famous ones. And it's uh, totally like, go read this wonderful, wonderful short poem if, if you if you wish to. Um, but that notion that there's this sort of 
energy, the giddiness. I like that. This kind of frantic energy that comes from the end, that comes from the chaos. Couldn't, couldn't that be, I mean, deep down, the lack of control you have over yeah. life. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we, we live in, in, in magical times. Mm -hmm. And what the ind most individuals have available to are absolutely just magical. But in that type of situation, I mean, you're, you're at the mercy of life and death. I mean, is really what it is. And that manic energy of knowing that it's out of your control. When it's out of your control, it's out of your control. It doesn't matter, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then as Jeevan is walking away from Toronto, going to set up a new life somewhere else because he doesn't want to stay in an urban center as many people wouldn't want to. Quote, he tried to keep up a litany of biographical facts as he walked, trying to anchor himself to this life, to this earth. He keeps telling himself, my name is Jeevan. I'm a Pakistani Canadian. <laughs> I am studying to be a paramedic. Just reminding himself who he is because all of those markers of identity that we just take for granted are gone. The center has not held. All right. So I, I'm going to differentiate or uh, I'm kind of argue something real quick. If we look at Detroit and what happened to Detroit when it imploded, I don't know if you necessarily have to leave a city because Detroit, people were abandoning their houses there. And what did they do? They started planning the yards and stuff like that. So you don't necessarily have to leave the city to have... I don't know, the prairie land return and to, to grow food and all in the things. winter in Toronto. Well, is Toronto <laughs> that further, much further North than Detroit? I don't, I, I don't know if it is. I guess for me, Chip, I, I don't know. I mean, Mandel doesn't say this, but in my mind, 4.5 million bodies is oh, there you go. something that I would also move away from. Yeah. I think that's why the urban, the urban centers after an apocalypse when you do have just those millions and millions of bodies, I I just wouldn't recommend it. I don't think it's a safe place to stay. Yeah. You have to be the Omega man. You have to get a car and then you have to have enough fuel yeah. to get out to someplace only to. But the roads were all, the roads were all covered with abandoned cars. There was no way to travel on those roads. That's so, so we're all looking for Toyota land cruisers, which are not the most energy efficient vehicles, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> get into so Mad Max real quick. You, <laughs> you like G-Fan's story. I did too. Um, Steve, what story did you, what story did you enjoy? I, I, I think that I, I actually, like Frank's story more than Jivan's, uh -huh. but okay. but the the two of them together, the, brothers. the, the yeah. brothers that are similar but certainly very different. The way that they interact with each other, the way that they try to save each other, the the moment mm -hmm. where the author writes that Frank says, "What if I go first yeah. and leaves it at that? Does not give us the rest of the story. The rest of the story is very clear to us, the readers, but she does not go into any kind of detail. This is about self-sacrifice. This is about what we would do to preserve whatever we could. And if we were the ones that needed to sacrifice 
we would do that to make the rest of our small little piece of this universe work after that that frank is my my go-to for that that's that's interesting what you would do for your family what i would do for my family what Uh, i would sacrifice well you see that with a lot of older people (laughs) and when i mean older people i mean yeah people whose lives would be would benefit from getting a um a knee replacement or something like that oh no don't don't give it to me you know younger people need or somebody else needs it and you're like well no no, you can you can do this there's plenty of your life improves too you're important too right but you know the um the great greatest generation did a lot of those self-sacrificing type things with with hopes that you know future generations would benefit and i like that idea of frank as sort of this heroic figure this heroic journalist figure and I kind of like that she uses the same name, Francois, which is just the French version of Frank, for um, the new journalist who's now taking Kirsten's story. And so we get Kirsten in two perspectives in this section. And Kirsten's story, of course, is like one of the big through lines. And it's the interview with Kirsten and Francois, who also represents like this new form of journalism that is absolutely like hard hitting fact-based journalism, not celebrity gossip at all. And so I think it's, I really love the interviews with Francois and I like the the little details we get about Kirsten who was eight, who forgets so much about the pre-pandemic world. And like, she's fascinated by the idea that people used to carry keys with them. And that's something like, we don't even think about it. We just wouldn't leave home without our key, right? But of course, in the apocalypse, you wouldn't lock things. And then when they went back, everything was still there. <laughs> and I just love that insight. And I really, really enjoyed it. Mandel writes great endings. And you guys know I like endings. At the end of part five, when it's the end of an interview, Kirsten says, do you remember fridges? And Francois says, of course. It's been a while since I've seen one used for anything other than shelving space. Kirsten. And they had light inside as well as cold, right? I'm not just imagining this. Francois, they had light inside. Isn't that something so moving, I think, about this notion that like you would miss the fact that your fridge has a light inside. Those little things. And and think about there are people alive today. I mean, in, in our society that grew up that was a big deal is to get an ice box uh-huh. the the refrigerator of the time uh-huh. and it's just taken for granted that I, I would say i'm throwing a number out 99 percent of us have in at least in the united states and canada probably have uh refrigerators uh-huh. technology and, is only technology for a very short amount of time and then it's just normal and when that normal is upset we have this notion of this idea of oh it had light inside and that's fascinating to her that memory the idea of the things you would miss right that we just don't even think about fresh food yes exactly exactly so Kristen and august have a bit of an adventure in this section and they get separated from the symphony and so now they are heading to the airport so this story is kind of interesting because we do have these missing symphony members and now Kristen and august are missing from the symphony and they don't quite know what happened or how 
So we do have, again, a mystery. The mystery genre is structuring this whole segment. Mm-hmm. And I love that idea that they have a plan. If you get separated, you go on to where we planned to meet. That's what you do. You don't make any other choices. We said we're going here. You go there, period. They're not silent, Steve. (laughs) They have a plan. They said they had a plan. They said they had a plan. (laughs) We saw a Cylon at the convention. We did. I don't don't think he had a plan. (laughs) He didn't have a plan. I, I think he was just walking. And and Steve, as you mentioned, August buys into parallel universe theory. And that's like this notion that like there might be a parallel universe where there has not been a pandemic. Who would we be in that universe? Or what if there's a universe where things were even worse? Mm-hmm. Who would we be in that universe? And so I love that Kirsten is so frustrated because of course she was just eight at the time of the pandemic. So In the Traveling Symphony, she's constantly asking older people to tell her stuff. And she finds out that a lot of them don't really know things. And I love the quote, none of the older symphony members knew much about science, which was frankly maddening, given how much time these people had to look things up on the internet before the world ended. (laughs) I just, I can totally imagine you know this 28 year old woman being like but you guys could have looked this up and guys how often do we think oh i'll totally look that up later and then we just you know get doing something probably fairly unimportant and never do look it up it happens all the time so access i was gonna say this is how modern society has gotten to the level we've gotten we we what what did adam smith say we we specialize Mm -hmm. and that specialization like he used a, uh, the, the, the pen uh, as an example, a stick pen. And he goes, you know, no, nobody knows how to uh, any individual part, but they all come together and we, we build them. And you may do the head of the pen and I may do the, the wire and somebody may um, straighten it, but somebody had to, to get the, uh, the material to make it. And it's all part of the specialization uh, of, of, of doing these types of things. And, Learning your craft means that you're not um, you're not the person in charge of growing food. Right. You're not the person in charge of, of of making lumber to 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 build this. You're not the person in charge of asphalt. And the beauty is is that we don't know anybody who I'm sorry we, we know so few of the people who do so many things that are part of our lives. And we think that life would maybe get simpler if you could go through like an apocalypse. But the reality is it gets really really hard really really fast. <laughs> And the idea of access to information has changed education. Like, I am not going to ask my students trivia questions and and assess their knowledge of trivia. I am trying to ask them much deeper questions that they can't Google in 10 seconds because they have that access. If that access is cut off because of a pandemic, then, yeah, some of that knowledge will be lost. It's like how to use that knowledge. As opposed, mm-hmm. or how to find that knowledge, as opposed to the trivia of like, well, who won the Super Bowl in you know 1978? The, the wow. skill that I teach is the how to access that knowledge, not to put it into your brain. The the idea of a game show like Jeopardy, somebody is so smart because they know so much trivial stuff. Is that really? 
is that really a good skill to have all that trivia in your head or, or is there something more beyond that? Well, many of us are masters of useless knowledge. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> now, so the other two characters that we spend time with in the section are Clark and Miranda. Now, personally, Clark is one of my favorite characters of the novel and he'll be very prominent in part four. But I love even this little section of Clark's story because he's Arthur's good friend from college. And at the beginning of this section, he's getting these crazy phone calls from Arthur's lawyer who's like, okay, Arthur has died and I'm trying to, you know, I need to notify people trying to get his affairs in order. And of course, the lawyer doesn't realize like, Again, this is all very unimportant business that he's taking care of. He's completely sleep deprived and he's trying to get through this portfolio that isn't going to matter two days from now. And Clark is just like, let the people sleep. <laughs> like we can call them in the morning. And he's kind of thinking, God, this, this lawyer is so work obsessed. But Clark is the same way, right? <laughs> and, so, and so at the end of this section, we find out Clark calls the ex-wives. He has these kind of, you know, awkward conversation with Miranda, awkward conversation with Elizabeth. And he ends up on the same plane as Arthur's second wife, Elizabeth, who we've already met, and their son, Tyler. And that totally makes sense because, of course, there's only so many flights going to Toronto. And so he, we find out he is lucky. He is on the 27th to last plane to depart from the airport. He and all the passengers on that plane, some 300 of them, none of them has touched a single infected surface at the airport. There's not a single sick person on the plane. Mm -hmm. And you think, whoa, that's totally unrealistic. But here's the thing. When you think about it statistically, all of the planes that fly to all of the places, I think Mandel does a really nice job of, of thinking that through. There are going to be most of the planes are going to be, of course, totally infected when they land, but there will be a couple of outliers. And that's the one that Clark happens to be on. That's why she's telling his story. And it's so brilliant the way that she puts that into the story. Like, like right. again, that mystery structure, mm -hmm. you, the reader, would want to have that piece of information and she puts it in there and says the word luck the luck of these people that they happen to be on that plane obviously we are going to hear about their story so we know that that's back to that foreshadowing and that callback that she has mastered in this section we know certain things are going to happen and then she goes and here's how it happened and so Clark's story is really just a setup, I think, at this point. Now, we get Miranda and many different points of her life. And here's where we start to follow the art objects. So it turns out, because like, how did Miranda's, Miranda took that paperweight that Clark had given Arthur and Miranda as an anniversary gift. And how does it end up with Kirsten, we might wonder. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. here's where... Arthur calls Miranda when his dad dies. This is just a few weeks before the apocalypse. And so he asks Miranda to come to Toronto and they haven't spoken in a long time. And so I feel like you get Miranda's perspective. Now she's like an executive and Arthur's just this guy. She was married with very briefly in her youth. It's not 
This is not someone she's close to at all, but she liked his dad and they came from that small island, right? So they still have that connection. Now, like when she's flying into Toronto, she remembers the first time she flew into Toronto and it seemed so enormous. And now that she spent so much time in New York City and LA and all the big Asian cities, it's just an ordinary little city. Mm-hmm. And again, that like shift of perspective. That's what it's all about. Right? All <laughs> about perspective. Seeing your little tiny piece of the universe and then seeing more of it and understanding because of what you've been able to see. It's well written. Exactly. And then when she meets up with Arthur, he tells her about the Dear V letters and how he used to write these letters, very intimate, personal letters about his life and other people in his life, including Miranda and Clark. And she has gone ahead and published them. And I think it's interesting. And these, of course, are the Dear V letters that Kirsten has in her backpack and has read with great interest. I like that Arthur says, you know what, this friend of mine, Victoria, I was just using her as a glorified diary. And he has this moment of sort of revelation of how poorly he has treated his friends. And he says, the truth is, I think I actually forgot she was real. He's just writing this diary to this woman who never writes back. And then Miranda thinks, did this happen to all actors? This blurring of borders between performance and life. Hmm. And that's a great question because of course our main characters, Kirsten and August are actors, right? Mm-hmm. To what degree do they live a real life versus a fictionalized life? Thespians. They are thespians. Uh, the, okay. So speaking as, as the thespian in the group, yes, yes, there is that moment. There is that moment where I was I, acting. I call my student by the name of the uh-huh. character instead of the name that they were given by their parents, because that's how I identify them. We have this shared experience of putting on this fiction and, and, we are altered by the characters that we play and we become different people through the experience of putting on a show. And, and where is that line? Where does the, where does the blur happen between who you are on that stage and who you are backstage? It's, it's an amazing, it's the best. It is the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's why it would survive the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially Shakespeare. Exactly. Exactly. Now, Miranda actually meets Kirsten, a little, this little cute eight-year-old girl. And she looks at her and she thinks, wow, that kid is going to grow up to be unadventurous and (laughs) well-groomed. Oh, that that would probably be that. I don't think that that's a backhanded compliment right there. Is it? I don't, I don't think it's a compliment. It's not a compliment at all. I don't think it was, I mean, she's just thinking, oh, these poor little child actors, what a terrible situation. Right. Kid, she's just going to be, you know, she's always going to be Arthur. She's always going to be pretending to be somebody else. She's not going to have any real adventures. She's just going to have like fake adventures. Well, little does she know that of course, 20 years from now, Kirsten is going to be this woman with, you know, knife tattoos on her wrists. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll learn about those later. Indeed, indeed. Now, 
we also get the Dr. Eleven comic book. And I think this is interesting. So Miranda gives Arthur two copies of two issues. And we know Kirsten has those two books and has read them a million times. Mm-hmm. And as Miranda's working on these, for years, Dr. Eleven had been the hero of the narrative. But lately, he'd begun to annoy her. And she'd become more interested in the undersea. These people living out their lives in underwater fallout shelters, clinging to the hope that the world they remembered could be restored. Hmm. And again, we have this idea. We write so many apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic narratives today, right? Miranda's writing one inside of the one that Emily St. John Mandel is writing. And she's started to not focus on that white male hero so much anymore, but she's starting to think about the other people, you know, the Pakistani Canadian paramedic, the female Shakespearean actor. You know, she's thinking about all of these other people and broadening out like who gets represented. Because the the white male was killed in the beginning. That that was <laughs> he's still center to the story yeah. because mm-hmm. all of the trail of who he was and how he affected all of these other people. But Emily St. John Mandel is giving us all of those other people's stories, and they're all wonderful stories, regardless of any factor other than they survived this pandemic. Right. So we get the Dear V book, we get the Station Eleven comic books, and we also get the paperweight. She brought it to Toronto, meant to give it to Arthur, totally forgot it in her hotel. When she gets back to the hotel, she's like, ah, and she has it couriered to the theater. <laughs> so it's like the odds that it actually ends up in Kirsten's backpack are crazy. But again, clue. this is mystery. This is yeah, here's so this piece, cool. here's that piece, and then they're all coming together. Right. Well, and Here's the, the the note of it is that as a reader, you're picking up those beats. Yeah. So the, the author has has set those up and they're not just being lost. Yeah. It's very nice. And, and and it's so very nice that she is not hitting us over the head with any of them. All. all of them are on us to recognize, oh yeah, I remember that from six chapters ago. That would be concussed. <laughs> <laughs> with the paperweight with with the tempest inside <laughs> in the drawing room exactly and we'd be playing clue at that moment yes. right yeah. in the, the paperweight in the library <laughs> so this section ends with miranda's death and we knew that it was coming of course but we actually see her death and i think her death is really beautifully described Miranda opened her eyes in time to see the sunrise, a wash of violent color, pink and streaks of brilliant orange, the container ships on the horizon suspended between the blaze of the sky and the water of flame, the seascape bleeding into confused visions of Station Eleven, its extravagant sunsets and its indigo sea, the lights of the fleet fading into morning, the ocean burning into sky. And Steve, it's got all the colors. <laughs> that is that is beautiful narrative description. Like, yeah, you, you have an emotional connection to this character. The the foreshadowing of she died on the beach that we got chapters ago, yes. and then here it is with beauty, with with 
looking at this world, even stupid container ships, and going, look at the beauty of these container ships on the horizon, suspended between the blaze of sky and the water of flame. Well, the container yeah. ships are the goods, the products, the connection you have to the world that was, mm -hmm. to the world that is. And the separation, the the suspension of those they're just there they, they they are unattainable she cannot get to them she thinks about getting to them and she thinks how could i do that i cannot get to what used to be i only have the future wow and of course this notion she she leans so heavily on metaphors of heat the blaze of the sky the water of flame the ocean burning and of course i mean she has a high fever that's going to kill her in moments and so that's tied with her own physicality but it also impacts her perspective and in the end she's kind of caught between the real world and her invented world of station 11 the world that is going to have so much meaning for Kristen Raymond, a little girl that she saw just, just a week ago and thought, oh, that poor little child actor whose entire life is going to be changed by this pandemic. Wow. Some say so much more with their words. Oh yeah, this is this is oh, yeah. literature. <laughs> this is absolutely masterclass level. Uh, all of these words mean so much and this is put together so very well. Well done, Pam. I, I could be literate by the time this is over. I'm just thinking. <laughs> After a year of a book club of going through all these books? Well, you know, there's no, hope. Just there's hope, book. Steve. There's hope. You discounted so many of the other books. This is the book that, that really might <laughs> put you over the edge. There's hope. So, Pam, what is our assignment for next week in this? Let's finish this book, my friends. Parts seven to nine. It's a little bit longer than the other sections. It's about 100 pages. And a trip to the airport, right? They're very, very good pages. <laughs> <laughs> that's called, that's a teaser. That's a that's teaser. A teaser. <laughs> that's a good tease. That's wonderful. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week. Can we come back next week, Pam? Of course. I can't wait. All right. Once again, we are finishing Station 11 for next week. So hopefully you're reading along with us. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Our email is sandwiches at irregularhours at gmail.com. Our website is sandwiches at irregularhours.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Regular Hours. I'm Steve Fodor. And I'm convention uh, attending Chip Hassan's and I'm stay at home, Pam, the door. We'll see you in the future.